When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking all about Upland wing shooting with wing shooting instructor and gun fitter Lars Jacob. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 167. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast, everybody. Glad to have you with us for another great show. We'll be speaking to Lars Jacob, wing shooting instructor, gun fitter, and fan of all things bird dogs and upland hunting, Lars Jacob, in just a moment. A couple quick announcements for all of you. Don't forget to subscribe to and or follow the Birdshot Podcast. Catch every episode, leave a rating or a review, share the podcast. All those things help out, make the show more findable, expand our audience, and grow the Birdshot Podcast community. So thanks for considering that patreon supporters thank you very much as always we're at the beginning of a new month which means the february giveaway is complete i'm still confirming with the winner whether or not they want the complete video training series from ron bame and justin mcgrail at the upland institute or the onyx elite subscription card i'll let you know on the next episode which one of those two is still available and the march giveaway will be one of those two things. So if you want to be included in the March Patreon giveaway, all you got to do is sign up. Patreon.com forward slash birdshot. As little as five bucks a month will get you signed up. Included in any and all Patreon giveaways. We've got a discount code for Upland Institute. we got Birdshot Podcast stickers and can coolers going out to Patreon supporters. Whatever we can do to say thank you for your support for the Birdshot Podcast. So thanks to everybody out there continuing to be a Patreon supporter and or considering it moving forward. 
Don't forget to use the code BSP20. That's BSP20 to save 20% on your next subscription to Onyx Hunt. Know where you stand with Onyx. That's promo code BSP20. And last but certainly not least, I will not be at Pheasant Fest this week, but I know many of you out there listening will be. So first of all, I'm jealous that I won't be there checking out all of the brands, gear, dogs, everything that Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever puts on display for all of us avid upland hunters, conservationists, you name it. If you've been there before, you know that Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever does a phenomenal job with this event. It's one of the most fun events related to upland hunting that I've ever been to. It was canceled last year. It's back this year. I'm not able to go. I'm pretty bummed about it, but I definitely intend to be at the next one. And for all those attending this year, I know you're going to enjoy it. Talking to a friend of the show, Matt Davis of Final Rise. He's going to be there with his team and the Final Rise vest. Definitely encourage you to stop by Matt's booth, check out his vests and some of the new things that he's bringing to the table. Definitely stop on by the Final Rise booth if you're there and enjoy it. It's going to be a good time. I'm missing out. Hopefully catch you at the next one. But a big thank you goes out to Pheasants Forever and Quill Forever for putting on this event. Wish all of the attendees and exhibitors and everybody involved this week best of luck. Hope you guys have a great show. And I'll look forward to hearing some reports and probably listening to some podcasts that are recapping the event a little bit. Can't wait to hear what's new from Pheasant Fest in 2022. All right. And on that note, one more reminder from our friends at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Deadline here being March 11th. Attention landowners, the Conservation Reserve Program, CRP, is now open. CRP is a great opportunity for those hard-to-farm acres. It also helps improve a farm's profitability, delivers high-quality wildlife habitat, cleaner water, and healthier soils. The CRP sign-up is going on right now through March 11th. Find a local Pheasants Forever biologist at pheasantsforever.org slash CRP or visit your local USDA service center. Farm the best and CRP the rest. A message from our friends at Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. All right, let's move into today's show. As I mentioned, Lars Jacob, wing shooting instructor, gun fitter, extraordinaire. I think I can say that. Lars has been around this stuff plenty long enough. Pretty much been a lifelong upland hunter, shotgun enthusiast. I really, really enjoyed talking to Lars. I've been thinking a lot about shotguns as I tend to do this time of year. I'm really eager to get out and start shooting clays and my brain starts to wander and think about, do I need another shotgun this year? Probably not, but don't we all? So with that in mind, I had lots of things that I was curious about. Wanted to talk to Lars about wing shooting and shotgun selection, what goes into picking the right shotgun for upland bird hunting and wing shooting. And Lars was absolutely equal to the task. He shared a lot of really quality information. I learned a number of things from him and gained some very, very valuable perspective for somebody that's been, again, shooting, instructing, fitting, all of that stuff for a very long time. So you will no doubt enjoy this episode with Lars Jacob. And one more thing before we jump into this, I mentioned it later on in our interview, in collaboration with Lars Jacob, Upland Gun Company, we are giving away a gun fitting with Lars Jacob. So one lucky winner is going to win a gun fitting with Lars Jacob, courtesy of Lars Jacob Wing Shooting and Upland Gun Company. This is going to be on location with Lars in Vermont at Peaceable Hill Farm in Shoreham, Vermont with Lars Jacob. So I'll put a link to that location and Lars' website, of course, in the show notes. Check that out. Look it up. If you are within striking distance of Shoreham, Vermont, and you are interested in doing a gun fit and or wing shooting instruction with Lars Jacob, send me an email, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Let me know you're interested. I will collect 
those entries through the month of March. And at the end of March, we will draw a winner and set somebody up with a gunfit slash wing shooting instruction from Lars Jacob. All right, if you have any questions, you know how to get a hold of me, nick at birdshotpodcast.com. Let's get on with it and welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot Podcast, Lars Jacob. Lars Jacob, welcome to the Birdshot Podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Well, Nick, thanks for having me on. This is uh, this is going to be exciting. Yeah, my pleasure. It was good to catch up with you a little bit yesterday, and we were. I could tell it was a it was a slippery slope. We were about to go into a deep rabbit hole on shotguns, and I said, you know what, we better wait till <laughs> wait till tomorrow when I'm actually recording this thing. But I'm looking forward to this conversation. But first, tell me. Has the storm of the century started to hit you yet? <laughs> I don't know if they've named this one yet. Uh, I'll have to look. Uh, but uh, it's, it, it's for a, a year of no snow. I'm sure the mountains are really, really appreciating here in Vermont. It is uh, Utah-type snow. It's very fluffy and light. Uh, definitely the coldest snow we've had this season. So that'll make it a lot easier for when I get off the uh, microphone here and have to go out and do something with it. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah that's we we had a blizzard here earlier this week and the consistently cold temperatures have kept everything fluffy so mm-hmm. i had to i was snow throwing the driveway twice and then we've got mm-hmm. some neighbors out of town on a trip they're very smart but i went over and cleaned up their driveway <laughs> and yeah lots of shoveling and snow throwing this week well the dogs are the, my labrador just loves it he loves snow and we were brown ground up until the storm because we had lost it all the last week yeah so he's he's a happy camper the short hair he's he's does he could care less about the snow <laughs> <laughs> what's what's typical is it typical for you to have snow kind of throughout the winter or does it come and go like that well you know i, I fondly call the place that we live in the banana belt of vermont because we are below a thousand feet down here in, in the Meadowy valley and uh, so our, our winters are actually kind of nice. They, they're, they're relatively short when it comes to snowfall. And typically uh, we go from snow and then we can go to brown ground and then back to snow and then back to brown ground. Uh, up on the mountains, of course, it is pretty much snow all year long. And, and uh, in fact, that the Green Mountain Spine just collects it. And, and even every day, there might be a couple inches to four inches in between the bigger storms that come through. So uh, it's very... It's very different and very elevation related. Uh, so uh, I lived up on the mountain, and once I realized that it was never going to change, it's either going to be black fly season or winter. Uh, <laughs> we moved down here into the valley, and it's been uh, it's been it's been quite nice. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I'm I'm going to strain my memory here and go out on a limb and say that I think you might be the first guest. Well, I guess I've interviewed Reed Bryant, and I think he lives in in vermont yes he does yeah yeah. so so i have interviewed him i was gonna i was gonna claim that you were the first vermont guest on the podcast but i guess you're (laughs) perhaps number two i may be forgetting somebody but yeah vermont (laughs) is uh my wife went to college out there for a couple years and she was my my girlfriend at the time so i spent a little bit of time out there beautiful you know burlington vermont it's it's been i don't know if it's people around here but it's been compared to duluth minnesota my hometown and i felt i felt there was some some similarities so i uh being on the water like that most definitely yeah yeah Yeah, i really enjoyed it out there so beautiful did she go to uvm or she did yep 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 a lot of i i went i went south i went to university of miami but a lot of my family members went to uvm including my father yeah let's jump in a little bit lars and get tell us a little bit about what you do for your profession and and where you're set up there in Vermont 
wing shooting and gun fitting and all that fun stuff. Yeah, sure. It's um, mostly mostly what I do is offer services of uh, gun fitting, shooting instruction, and uh, basic all around education of the of the outdoors. Also, even in fly fishing and foraging and what have you, uh, with this new trend that we have out there. But primarily, it's wing shooting. And um, I have a wonderful, wonderful little preserve uh, that I work with uh, called Peaceable Hill Farm up in the, in the Lake Champlain Valley up in Shoreham, Vermont. Uh, Glenn and Judy Simone own this beautiful little piece of acreage. It's uh, um, about 30 years old as being run as a pheasantry. That's where I have my instruction area. Uh, and it also allows me to put on uh, live bird shoots as well. And we even do uh, certain uh, shooting schools that involve live bird to help really introduce upland hunting to uh, the new students that are starting to come along on a regular basis. I also uh, specialize in vintage guns and uh, mostly side-by-side shotguns uh, as far as fitting and as far as instruction. Uh, methodology is a little bit different when shooting a side-by-side. Mm. Me- methodology is definitely different when shooting feather over clay, uh, which is also what I specialize in. I specialize mostly in all things feather. Excellent. Well, that will that will certainly uh, raise a few eyebrows from the listeners. I think they'll be they'll be looking forward to some conversation on that, uh, as that's what brings most of us here to listen mm-hmm. and uh, and enjoy these conversations with our guests. Give me the abbreviated history on how you found yourself getting into wing shooting and shotgunning and upland hunting and all that stuff. Oh, uh, well, I, I blame my father. I mean, I, <laughs> for, fortunately, I had someone to influence me, and uh, he was quite the adventurer, uh, as in mostly in the hunting and fishing world. I mean, we literally grew up with a grass airstrip in the back with a 1953 Cessna 170B tail dragger. And we had a wonderful, wonderful place up on a Tavis attack in New Brunswick, Canada, also with a grass airstrip. Uh, I can always remember we can be loading the labs up into the, and, uh, into the plane and then head up to Holton to go through customs and then up into our, to, uh, New Brunswick and buzzing the airfield to get the moose off before we land and it was it was a wonderful time that was all during the 70s uh when it was so rich up there with uh game and it still is very much so but we were on a tavis attack river so we had uh, atlantic salmon and sea run brook trout as well as some of the most phenomenal waterfowl hunting you could possibly imagine uh, hunting uh, candidates on the beach and Brant on the beach using tollers and and um, sitting in sink boxes because that was the last place left in North America that you could use uh, sink boxes. I have a wow. nice collection of cast iron Brant decoys that would help. But a miserable, miserable way to hunt, but so deadly. <laughs> but also the upland was fantastic. Uh, between the grouse and the woodcock, it was just phenomenal. And then uh, here in Vermont during the 70s and, and for the most part of the 80s, we were still going through our transition of going as a ag and logging uh, state into a um, tourist and second home resident state. Mm -hmm. And so we still had fantastic habitat. Unfortunately, we're now we're surrounded by uh, 50-year growth and and we've lost a lot of that habitat. But back then, Vermont hunting was phenomenal. It was absolutely fantastic. So I I was surrounded with it all time and ended up uh, traveling at a young age extensively to other states hunting and fishing. And then uh, I got, uh, when Jennifer and I got married, I went to work for Orvis uh, oh, okay. back in the early 90s. And uh, I started just as a wing shooting and, and fly fishing instructor, and then very quickly be- uh, became manager of their gun department. 
and was their chief fitter and and uh, chief gun fitter and uh, and shooting instructor. Uh, I spent some time in the UK working with Alan Rose of West London Shooting School and Ken Davies of Holland Holland on their philosophies of gun fitting. And uh, it just it just kept trucking. Uh, you know, I've done everything from building guns to teaching people how to shoot uh, to studying old vintage Scottish guns in particular. So uh, it, it's it was difficult for me to do anything else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <with> <laughs> been a li- lifelong journey and and clearly a passion of yours. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. What do you remember about the early days of early days of shotgunning? Do you remember your first shotgun? Did you have one gun that you used for a long time, or were you were you shooting all kinds of different stuff right from the get go? Yeah, fortunately, I was smart enough to cut my teeth on a side by side. In fact, <laughs> uh, I think it was 1971. Uh, my first shotgun was an SKB made for Ithaca, uh, oh, yeah. 20 gauge side by side, which I tell people now, if you find them used, grab them up. What a great yeah, those are, gun. Yeah. Those are still coveted. And, um, that was, uh, my first gun. And, you know, we, we were running, uh, uh, short hairs labs and beagles. So I was using it for waterfowl. I was using it for, uh, upland and I was using it for snowshoe hair. We had a, back in those days, we had a hell of a fun time running hair up here in Vermont in the, in the spine of the green mountains. Uh, my, my father was completely different. He was always, uh, uh he loved those, uh, auto Browning humpback fives. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, he had every single one of them. Uh, thankfully I learned that, uh, you looked a lot better missing in a side by side than he did a big old rattle trap. So <laughs> I, I started with a side by side. Fortunately, I don't miss as much as I used to, but uh, that was a learning curve as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. What's the... What are your top tips for snowshoe hare hunting? Do you still do that anymore? Uh, not as much. Okay. And I'm going to tell you something. My top tips would be very antiquated uh, because there's so much electric used these days. But, you know, we, just to give you an idea of what it was like back in Vermont then, uh, we used to actually hunt on the backside of Stratton Mountain Ski Area. And what we did is we usually we got in line to get on the chairlift. This is in the 70s. You know, Stratton just started in the early 60s. And we would get on in line to get on the chairlift with our guns, our beagles, and our snowshoes, and ride up to the top of the mountain first up the Sun Tanner lift, then over the North American up to the top from there. And the backside of Stratton was loaded with snowshoe wow. hair, and we would just have a blast up there hunting. And then at the end of the day, we'd come back down on the lift. <laughs> uh, something you definitely couldn't do today, that's yeah. for sure. Uh, but like I said today, uh, yeah, there, our snowshoe hair is back a little bit, and friends of mine who still run. You know, they're, they're, it's a different game. It's all GPS and electronics, and, and they, they play it differently than I did. Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah, and the the dog side of things is is a whole different animal entirely. Yeah, I've 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 never really done it myself. I see plenty of them in my grouse and woodcock covers here, and I was I kept telling myself this winter I was going to take out the snowshoes and go for a walk just without my dogs and just right. you know see if I could make something happen. But I never did. Never did there, there were many times that I, I, we just you just couldn't. Old Champer, who was our best beagle that we've ever had, he was phenomenal. But uh, many times you just at the end of the day you couldn't pull him off, and, and uh, you'd have to leave your jacket there with some uh, dog biscuits. And the next morning I'd come back, and there'd be sitting on that jacket waiting for me. And wow, <laughs> you know, then that, that was how we had to find him because, like I said, this is all pre-electric. So yeah, fast forwarding to today a little bit. I we talked about this a bit yesterday, and when it comes to your Upland hunting, wing shooting, and start. If somebody comes to you and says, 
regardless of their experience, but they they want to be a better better upland hunter slash and let's put the focus on wing shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, better upland wing shooter. Where does that conversation start? Well, I guess it really comes down to translating what shooting really is. Yeah. The, the the old old adage was that shooting was something you either were naturally good at or not. No one looked at it like golf or tennis. Uh, and it was Robert Churchill who finally said it could be taught and learned like uh, golf or tennis. So the first thing you do is you you try to teach them that or explain to them that they're going to learn shooting just like they would any other sport. The difficult part of it is that in most other sports that you learn, the student sees progression quite easily. If you are learning to fly cast, you see the line suddenly go out with just a little bit more speed than it did last time, maybe a little more uh, straighter. If you are learning golf or you're learning tennis, if you feel that swing was a lot more efficient and you see the ball uh, respond to that yeah, more efficient. A lot efficient. of feedback so, coming from the golf ball, absolutely. Yeah. And But you, they don't, the student doesn't see that in shooting. Mm-hmm. It's still there. I see it as an instructor. So what I try to explain, it's really getting into their head to say, this is what you, you should expect. Don't expect to see a progression of where you see two birds broken out of 10 and then four birds broken out of 10 and then six and then finally eight birds broken out of 10, you're going to see birds uh, two out of 10, two out of 10, two out of 10, and then suddenly it's eight out of 10. The student rarely sees the four and six. I do as an instructor. I see that they're becoming much more efficient in their movement. Their focus is, is going back towards the bird where it should be because muscle memory is starting to come into play. And uh, then all of a sudden, that same presentation goes out in front of them and they squash it eight times in a row. Mm. Uh, so getting into their head and making sure they understand that, hey, you missed that target, yes, but you're getting better. You are getting better. And then obviously the rest is just under, you know giving them a better understanding of what's actually happening when you squeeze the trigger, what's actually happening because of a proper gun mount that allows you not to aim uh, and still be very effective of hitting your target. It's There's a lot of teaching them to visualize something that they can't see that yeah. is easier to see in any other sport. You know. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Uh, and I've I've commented on that before in talking to other wing shooting instructors, just the lack of feedback, especially as the shooter, you know, you as the as the instructor, you get to watch the movement and see that kind of stuff, but as the shooter, it's kind of a it's kind of a break or no break and sure you might have an idea if you were ahead or behind or above or below, but it's really hard to know that without without you know a more detailed feedback loop right absolutely absolutely and the other thing too that you want them to learn not only to to become a better shot but to start recognizing what was the mistake that made to that led led to that uh, miss Uh, that that's very important because you know you go on an expensive trip to argentina or to the uk or whatever you know i'm not going to be there so you got to learn yourself how to to get yourself out of that slump and make the correction when necessary. Yeah. That's interesting thinking back to, you know, going way back before Churchill in the way that gun shooting was thought of and that it wasn't that like this athletic movement that you could imagine somebody with a, you know, with a simple eye dominance problem and they can't hit anything. And, you know, it's, well, I just don't have the shooting gene in me. <laughs> right. How exactly. frustrating. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the other thing I do tell these students. The other thing to learn is that this is not a sport. It is an art. Uh, Because if you approach it thinking of it as a sport, then you're going to get into that uh, rigid stance that you were in when you were playing linebacker or something of that nature, uh, as opposed to a much more comfortable. I teach very much English philosophy, which is a very, very comfortable, relaxed philosophy of shooting. 
Uh, so I got to get them to understand that you got to relax, stand up, lessen the grip on the gun, uh, which will allow for ease of, of movement and actually uh, more movement. Um, you know, a wide stance shortens up the amount of movement you have. A, sh- a close stance maximizes the movement you have. And uh, that's so these are the other things because they, they soon as it's, it's so interesting when you get them to move on a target without a shell. And then suddenly I said, that's it. I said, if you, that would have broken that target right there. And then you put the shell in and all of a sudden the feet get wider, the shoulders round up and they yeah. get rigid. And I said, why are you doing something different now that you have a shell in your gun as opposed to when you practice without that shell? And that's, you know, again, that's, and they don't know they're doing it. It's just the subconscious is so strong. So that's yeah. where you again got to get into their head. That's one of the things that's that had long fascinated me about golf and i don't i don't play much anymore i i I always say i'm going to go back to it but you know just given the the size and the growth in that sport there's a lot of you know psychology and development around it but i think it was a ben hogan book that i read that it dives deep into again it's all about like you think it's this power move right but but power comes from being loose and relaxed and comfortable and you're trying to remove tension from the body and there's there's so much so many parallels there when it comes to gripping a shotgun and and you know fluidly moving rather than bracing yourself and getting tense but in in shooting we have this interesting component of recoil and and that's where that that's playing in as, as the subconscious that you're talking about you know a lot of that is uncontrolled how do you how do you coach people around that kind of thing yeah that 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 can be very difficult for the brand new shooter they they expect recoil they've heard of it they you know they're talking they're looking at this gun in their hands that you know ballistically will put out upwards of eight nine thousand foot pounds of energy when you squeeze a trigger and so they they're already going to recoil even you know without the gun going off they know they're going to recoil or the subconscious knows it's going to recoil and that's 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 a difficult part so you, you kind of got to get that out of the way by, you know, saying, okay, well, let's take the shot. And, uh, you know, first of all, making sure that they don't take the shot unless they are in that proper gun mount. Because fit and gun mount are what reduces recoil, felt recoil more than anything else. Mm. And then once, because it's sound that they, re- that they react to. That's what people don't realize. It's the sound. It's very loud. You're right next to that gun. And so people say, oh, my God, that was a heck of a kick on that gun. I said, no, it wasn't. It was just a loud noise that you were expecting. and It was even louder than you expected. And so you reacted to it. And you started getting away from the gun when it went off. So the recoil felt came from coming out of your gun mount. And then all of a sudden, if the focus finally gets back to the target, the target breaks. They forget all about recoil. Once that target breaks, they will forget about it. But uh, it's so easy to reduce felt recoil today with the ammunition we have available to us. And the modern day guns now with overboring and length enforcing cones and the whole bit and the type of ammunition we have available to us, it's, it's very, very easy to uh, uh, reduce felt recoil. So I use extremely light loads when I coach, yeah. and uh, especially when I gun fit, because at the gun fitting board is where you get the most flinches. Uh, it's very difficult to fit when someone is totally conscious of the gun because we're not throwing a moving target in the air they're, they're shooting at a pattern board so they're the distraction is not there so they're totally focused on the gun and what it's going to do to them so that's one of the hardest places for me with recoil and, and making sure the fit is right is actually at the pattern board yeah that, yeah so much of what is perceived has to do with where 
where your focus is. Yeah, that's a really interesting interesting way to look at it. What what's a what's a really light load like like under a thousand FPS? I mean, I know there's some Winchester double A's that run at like nine eighty. I mean, is that what you're talking about? Well, yeah, in in uh, some of the more uh, known manufacturers, uh, the, the the subsonics, the nine hundreds, and stuff mm-hmm. like that uh, that Winchester puts out and and uh, uh, BNP puts out, and actually BNP has a wonderful little a light load. But uh, you know, uh, anywhere, e- even upwards of twelve hundred. But yeah. one of my favorites is uh, eleven fifty. And in fact, there's a RST puts out a wonderful little two inch shell at a thousand fifty. That's that's my gun fitting load. Oh yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, it doesn't beat up my tri guns either. Sure, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so uh, um, there, there's some you know absolute wonderful loads, and hopefully uh, we'll get out of this ammo situation. Uh, probably won't be until next year, unfortunately, but uh, we should be getting out of it within the next year or so, and, and we can get the ammo that we want again. Yeah, that that's a. I mean, it's a that is a rabbit hole that we won't dive into today. But yeah, <laughs> the the amount you can do and sort of manipulate and change a gun, and it, it does play into. I want to talk about gauge a little bit, but again, modern ammo, what you can do with payloads and velocities, especially mm-hmm. in you know say twelve and twenty, but even in even in the twenty eight gauge and the other more common ones, you can just you can really change change the way a gun shoots fits and feels with certain loads yeah dramatically absolutely all right i do want to before we potentially leave this in talking about knowing where we missed is there is that worthy of some conversation are there are there things that we could talk about here that might might help people and like how you coach people into recognizing a mistake and potentially fixing it yes i mean it's mostly it's it's uh they have to learn where they missed by being reminded of what they did wrong and so that they feel it. If, if they, if they stay flat footed or if I tell somebody you were behind, they said, how could I be behind? I saw a ridiculous amount of lead, which of course that's the worst word you could possibly use. Forward allowance is more preferred, uh, so that there isn't point A and point B. But regardless, it's, it's, I say, well, did you just pull the gun down from exactly where you took the shot? And they kind of realized that they did. And I said, I don't care how many feet you saw in front of that target. If you stop the gun, it just soaked up that lead and made it disappear. Yeah. You got to still have feeling of gun movement after you shot. So if they go out there and they say, I'm, I missed behind because I can tell because my gun stopped. Okay. So they, they, what they do is they recognize those type of things. They, yeah. uh, you know, I, I say, uh, are you on your heels? If you're on your heels, it's going to be, you don't have anywhere near the movement. This is like any other sport, even though I said before, think of it as an art. The fact is, it is a sport where you have to play on your toes, just like you would any other sport, or you're going to get beat. If you play basketball on your heels, you're going to get beat. If you shoot on your heels, you're going to get beat. Hmm. So extension frees up movement uh, and gives you the ability to get muzzle speed. I'm a very strong proponent of muzzle speed over lead perception. Uh, I try to eliminate lead perception and just think forward allowance and utilizing muzzle speed to get that forward allowance. Uh, so that means freeing yourself up so you have plenty of swing room. That gun has still got to be moving after you squeeze the trigger. Uh, learning how to follow through. Learning, uh, you know, I've had so many people come to me and say, you know, I, I need to get better, but I know what I'm doing wrong. And I say, well, what is that? And they say, well, I'm peaking, uh, which, of course, I think you know is a, a term that most wing shooters use for lifting their head as they're squeezing the trigger. Mm-hmm. And you typically will shoot high because the muzzle always follows your, your line of sight. And if your line of sight lifts, uh, then you miss high because the muzzle follows it. There's that intersection of lines. 
uh, and people don't realize that this is geometry. If you only lift a quarter of an inch off the rib of the gun with your pupil, uh, that's going to uh, go into feet once you get out to 30 yards. Yep. So peaking, what I try to explain to them is peaking is rarely the actual problem that created the miss. It was a domino effect. It, it led to the miss, but there was something else that you did wrong that made the subconscious want to peak. And typically what it is is jumping into the gun too fast before you fully acquire the bird. Very, very common with upland bird hunters. They're conscious things that these birds are going like screaming demons and they can't get anything done unless they get into a gun mount. You're talking to me right now, that's for sure. <laughs> and what they don't realize is the gun mount is the last thing that you should be doing. That's the very last thing you do is the actual gun mount. So what happens is they mount the gun in a hurry because they hear the thundering roar of a grouse taking off, a rough grouse taking off. And then they have to chase after it to reacquire it. But there's this darn mass in front of their eye, and they can't reacquire it. So they lift their head to see over this mass. They see it, and they squeeze the trigger, and they miss high. So you have to correct that in the beginning to eliminate peaking. Otherwise, your subconscious, you'll be fighting your subconscious constantly trying to correct that. It's what, what, what really blows new shooters, even experienced shooters who are self-taught, away is when I show them which hand is priority. And... They, you know, they put so much dominance into their gun mount hand, and mm-hmm. more, more than likely, unless meaning, someone's meaning cro- the hand on the grip, right? The hand on the grip, yeah. the hand on the trigger, and the grip. Okay, yeah. that 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 hand does the exact same thing regardless of the presentation. It lifts to the cheek and squeezes the trigger, whether the bird's coming in, whether the bird's crossing, or whether the bird's going away. It doesn't matter. It does the exact same thing. It's a hand holding the forestock that has to tell the brain all the information it needs about that target. And what people don't realize is that you can analyze that bird or that target while you're mounting the gun, not after. Everyone thinks they have to get into a gun mount and then find the bird's angle, speed, and distance. But if you put the the, the sequence of point and then mount and shoot, as opposed to mount and then chase and shoot, yes, uh, then their, your hand, and I'm going to talk as a right-handed shooter right now, your left hand is going to send in that microsecond unbelievable amounts of information to the brain while the right hand is hinging to the cheek. So that when you hit the cheek, you should be able to squeeze the trigger almost instantly to a microsecond later, depending on the distance and what kind of uh, habitat we're in. Instantly, if you're grouse hunting, a microsecond later if you're on, uh, shooting on a plains bird. But the amount of time that you should be in the gun should be extremely short, very minimal, because uh, f- you're focus on that bird is at its strongest right up to the point that the wood hits your cheek. Once you ride that gun and that wood's attached to your cheek, you're going to start losing focus on the bird and you're going to start trying to see what you're trying to hit it with. And that's that's a losing game every time. Yeah, those definitely ring true for me. I, I'm My wing shooting has improved dramatically, mainly because I was one of those, I mean, self-taught would be an overstatement. I, I, like I wasn't, I didn't even think about it, you know, and I remember, I think shifting the focus to my left hand was huge because I think I, I had a very, and, and I think it's probably pretty common, a really strong right-handed grip, and you're kind of right. snapping that gun up to your shoulder. And it's like we talked about, all that does is just create a bunch of tension, a bunch of unnecessary muzzle movement and all that stuff. But when you shift that focus out to the left hand and you're really just pointing, tracking, following the bird after you've made <clears throat> good visual visual contact, that's right. I think that's that's, you know, I've seen leaps and bounds of improvement just as a result of that. Gun movement efficiency will get you on the bird quicker than gun speed. No question about it. Only what is necessary to get you to that target or that bird. 
Um, and, you know, moving drastically faster or even slower is not in the cards. You can't do that. You don't have that option. You don't have that choice. The, the bird or the target tells you how fast you should be reacting. And it should be reacting in, in complete harmony with that bird. And then at the very last second, the very instant you hit the cheek, you create that acceleration because while you're coming to the cheek, you are finding its line, its angle, its speed, its distance. So that when you hit your cheek, you already know that. Now you say, now I know where you're going. I'm going to beat you there. So you put into that muzzle velocity that gives you the forward allowance without perceiving it. And, um, that's, and that's all done from the ground up. I mean, people don't realize that swing, your arms never swing a gun. Your arms lift and point. Your body, your core, even your feet help you swing the gun. Yeah. How do you coach people through the transition of shooting? You know, there's there's the theory and then practicing that at the range, but then get out into the, we'll say, the grouse woods because, you know, that's, that can be nasty. So how do you – maybe I'll just – kind of give my answer to this. I think it's like you train, you train the practices and you train that stuff at the range so that you're not thinking about it in the woods. Right. But are there things that you tell people when you have unstable footing and all of that kind of stuff, or should just everything essentially kind of translate through the subconscious once you get out there? Yeah. I mean, there's, first of all, you know, I'm teaching upland bird hunting, or if I'm teaching one of my specialty schools, that's really, really just, you know, this is someone who's coming to me because they're definitely getting a dog or they have a dog and they're going to definitely be upland bird hunting. Yeah. Then we're going to get more involved of things like that. An absolute beginner shooter who's coming to me and saying, I don't know if I'm going to play this game and I don't know what direction I'm going to play this game. Yeah. Uh, Then obviously we're not going to really take that into consideration, but we're going to talk about the type of covers that they might be hunting in and how they would move with their dog and stop and where you would stop and what your feet position are we going to stop but even on what i do is i i love i love teaching on a wobble trap Mm. uh and teaching people how to learn to readdress a target before they start mounting the gun so many times if you put somebody in a wobble trap and suddenly that trap you know you don't see it but it moves all the way to the right and your your muzzle you're expecting something to go over center or left and your muzzle is kind of favoring that direction what I see most commonly is as soon as that target goes out and they get a glimpse of it, they're mounting the gun as they're moving left or right to reacquire or to address themselves to it. And learning to turn your body or take those small little foot movements to get you to readdress what now is the target and then start moving in harmony and mounting with the gun. And I know that sounds like there's a lot going on. There's no way a target gives you that time or a bird gives you that time. Baloney, they do. And uh, there's no bird that flies faster than you can think. There's there's no uh, target that flies faster than you can react. So we can utilize these little foot movements to readdress so that when you are coming up to the gun mount, you are drawing the line that it's flying on so that when you hit the cheek, you know where it's going and you accelerate and you squeeze the trigger. So footwork is, is a huge part of that and, and readdressing. The most important thing is making sure that people realize that when you take steps, you, you got to think of yourself as you move like a tank turret. You're not going to slide. You're not going to step and walk towards the bird. You're not going to walk to either side. You're going to pivot. And so the movement of your feet is always inside the width of your shoulders. And it's always moving like a turret and not to move forward or backwards. It's to move around in a pivot motion. Uh, that way you're never off your balance. You have that. I mean, when you, if you were to watch me shoot, my heels are literally only about three or four inches apart from each other. Yeah. I mean, I'm very, very close foot stance, and that's what I preach as much as possible. And that allows you to readdress a bird and, and accommodate footing situations uh, of that nature. I mean, we're always going to come across a bird that's going to catch us. Yes. Uh, you yeah. know, in a situation that's all part of hunting. 
Yeah. And again, yeah, that's where the, the training and the practice is going to give you the best chance, but yeah, you're always going to, you're always going to have your hands tied at one, one point or another, especially in the rough grouse woods. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I want to talk about a little bit about kind of going back to focus, seeing the bird, maintaining that contact. And that's just, I was reading something recently about how, and this is like something I struggle with and we'll talk through this a little bit, but when you, you'll say maintain intense focus on the target, right? That sounds so simple. And here I am standing at the, at the stand ready to call pull. And my only job is just maintain intense focus on the target. And of course, move, mount and shoot that kind of thing. But so many times I get through the shot and immediately post shot, as you're kind of talking about, like I'm trying to acknowledge certain things that I experienced or felt. And I'm like, I, I did not have a laser focus on that target. And I know there's a bunch of things that can, that can inhibit that focus, but how do you address that problem? Well, yeah, there's uh, many ways, again, because of the different presentations we might see in the field, whether it's uh, a woodcock cover or whether mm. it's a uh, pheasant cover. Um, so the, the thing about it is this. Is a, a clay target is actually the easiest thing to find a little spot on it to focus on. And uh, you find that little spot that's no bigger than your thumbnail, and typically on the leading edge, and that's what you focus on, and that's what you react to, whatever methodologies you, you tend to apply. In bird hunting it's a lot more difficult. It's far more difficult to create that focus only on the leading edge, the beak, the head of the bird, because we do two things naturally. We always look for the biggest part of anything. Big tail fan. (laughs) Right. The tail fan, middle of the body. And more importantly, movement always catches our attention. Mm -hmm. So we always go to the wing beats. And that's that's a very, very difficult thing to break yourself out of. And, And that's a focus that you don't need to be shooting a gun to practice. I tell people there's there's two things that you're you're fighting here when you're learning to shoot. If you are if if this individual is shooting off the right shoulder and is right eye dominant, so the dominant hand is on the grip and not on the forestock, then he's got to learn two things. One is that he's got to teach the left hand now to point or she. And we're all shooters now, thankfully. Yep. And uh, you uh, have to teach that hand to point. If if you have both hands free and you and I said point at that target. I guarantee you'd lift the right hand because that's the hand that used to always point. Mm-hmm. So you teach that left hand to point. So if you're out gardening or walking the dog or anything like that, the key is is, is when that dove flies by, when that blue jay flies by, is to point at it with your left hand, but more importantly, point at the head only and teach your brain, which constantly needs a reminder of its job, to focus away from the wing beats and just see the color of the head. Obviously, the quail hunter, the old, you know, the old adage of quail hunting is always shoot for a white head. And that does two things. It focuses on the leading edge, and it means you're probably going to shoot more uh, cockbirds and hens. Yeah. But, that you know, that was the, the general practice is always look for the white head, shoot the white head. Woodcock, we look for that head. <laughs> That big, big ass eyeball they got, or that long beak, or that you long know? beak, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, but pheasant are extremely difficult uh, because they are so large in the middle and big long wings, and big tail, gaudy and big rooster. wings. Exactly, yep. that's the most difficult one uh, to put the focus back out. And grouse are the same. Grouse are big in the ass end, and not you know they're, they you need to be able to see that little crest on their head or something. You need to really focus hard on that on that head. So that's something you can practice without shooting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in, in the cover too, everything is exacerbated by, you know, the bird going through the trunks of the trees and the stems, and then it's just, it can be a, a blurry mess basically. 
Well, I wrote an article on that called There Are No Trees, which is, I mean, I, I used to be a very hardcore elk hunter as well. And we used to, you know, had the saying, you look beyond the trees. And uh, I wrote an article uh, for about wing shooting where there are no trees. Uh, it's actually on my website. But um, it, it basically, you have you two different types of vision. You have that very small percentage of ultra-sharp focal, and then you have this huge amounts of subconscious or, or peripheral vision. So what you're doing is, is when you are hunting woodcock or grouse, which are notorious for thick covers, is learning how to see that line that it's flying on through those little visuals of windows. Yeah. Instead of waiting for that little that bigger window that you'd think it's going to come through and wait and poke at it, you still draw that line through. You're looking through the trees. Your your subconscious vision is awareness has awareness of the trees, but your 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 small percentage of sharp focal sees the bird even through the trees. It has that much intensity. And you know, for a couple of guys that are at, with their own trap and are practicing at home, you you take an angle that's typical of distance and, and angle of a woodcock or grouse out in the wide open. And then learn your movement on that and then take it into the woods, put it the exact same distance, exact same angle, but throw in those handful of trees and uh, practice that way so that you can start maintaining that focus on the target and the trees are just part of your subconscious vision. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I, I find that that fascinating and really, I mean, that's the only way that we're able to do this is with this amazing power of our eyes and subconscious and it's you know, even just pointing at something like the skill that you develop just by, you know, being a person and right. doing this for years and years, it's, it, it is incredible. And it's, it's part of what makes this all so fun and, and fascinating, but yeah, good sporting clays course too. set up, you know, i we've got a really good one around here that you can go sit on a number of stations and shoot through the trees and work on that kind of stuff that can really help. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's fun to see a lot more hunter clays courses popping back up. And that, yeah. that has a lot to do with the, uh, even though the vintagers are, are hurting a little bit in numbers of new members, but it, it, it's, it spawned something that I think is very, very good and it has helped, uh, new coming bird hunters. And, and that's keeping targets more realistic to, uh, bird flight. When someone does say to me, I'm, you know, should I go to the sporting clays course? And I'll say yes, but you got to do several things. So you got to, first of all, use your game gun, not your sporting clays gun. Use your game shooting methodologies, not your sporting clays methodologies because they are completely different. Yeah. And stay away from those those presentations that are absolutely unrealistic and unethical, and leave the scorecard at home. Those are the most important things. Then you can go to the, the, the uh, sporting place course and practice, but just the right presentations using the right methodologies. Yeah. When it comes to practicing, um, we won't spend a ton of time on this, but what about some of the other disciplines? Or again, and I'm really thinking of that person that comes to you and says, hey, I want to practice shooting for upland hunting but i've got a course that they only have trap or they only have skeet or they've got sporting clays what what else what might you say in that situation yeah i mean trap for the most part is a difficult one to practice for it's it's such a you know you know those trap shooters they, they miss that first target and they say the hell that you know it's mm. over you know that's what that right, game's right. all about Skeet, of course, was originally for the woodcock and grouse hunter. Yep. Uh, so if you shoot it like when it first evolved in the late ni- in 1920s, then, then uh, you are practicing for a uh, good bird hunting scenario. Uh, just get the pre-mount stuff out of the way and, yep. again, go back to utilizing your, your upland gun. It, it, it's so funny to see these barrel lengths that are coming out now with the disciplined shooters. Um, you know, and, and I remember someone asking me, they said, well, you know, all these people are shooting 32 and even 34 inch guns now. Is that to give them 
better ballistics over a long distance. And it's not. We don't need long barrels anymore with our modern-day powders to help with ballistics. What it's doing is that they are, in the old days, we used to call it spot shooting, and they they took offense to it, but that's exactly what it is. They're minimizing their movement so much that they have to perceive a lead as opposed to using muzzle speed for forward allowance. So for every one inch your gun barrel is longer, you've knocked one foot off of your lead perception. So it gives it a, yes, it gives it a realistic window. That's what the long barrel is for, to give you a realistic window in front of that target. So even in the game of skeet, you're seeing 32-inch barrel guns now. That's a close-range game. Yeah. But in the old days, I mean, when I watched the old guys used to do it, they would point their gun at the house, and then they would react uh, like they would in a bird hunting scenario, releasing the heel. You know, if they're pointing at the low house, they're going to release their right heel and swing and push their shoulders through that target and create muzzle speed. And I can teach people to shoot from even five and six to show them that there is no need to perceive lead if you do it right. You just use forward allowance. And, and uh, they're amazed because they read all the books that from that station there should be a three-foot to four-foot lead. So if you go back to the game of skeet and utilize your game gun and utilize the methods that you first, you know, that everyone used to use on the game of skeet, then you are practicing good bird hunting methodology. Yeah. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and friend of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. I don't want to. I don't want to jump ahead here, but I. I can't leave the the barrel length conversation. That's that's one that it's uh it's definitely it ebbs and flows, right? Like there's and if you pay attention to vintage guns or you you really if you read anything at all, um, in wing shooting you'll kind of you'll know that sort of short barrels were a thing for a long time. And now, I mean, certainly now the trend is long, long, long. And I mean, there's reasons to, you know, we can debate this stuff till the cows come home, right? That's, that's kind of the way it goes with shotguns. But for the upland shooter, how do you think about barrel length? Is there one barrel length that you say is the best or, I mean, it so much depends on an individual gun and, and how it feels and balances too, right? Well, yes, for the most part. I mean, it, the old vintage guns, I don't care what the barrel length is. Uh, the, the, those days, they put the time in to make sure the gun balanced at its appropriate spot, right? regardless of the length of barrel. But barrel length is a fad and that's unfortunately how it's approached now and not, you, you gotta, you think about barrel length is where is it that the longer barrel is going to help me out? Where is it the short barrel is going to help me out? Well, the, the long barrel really does help out in certain waterfowl, uh, long passing scenario situations. It's absolutely a must in a ver- in today's high, high driven bird shooting uh, that you see mostly in the UK. Uh, because even creating muzzle speed, there's still more of an awareness of lead in those particular circumstances. 
And in that case, that longer barrel helps you uh, see a realistic lead where a short barrel would be, wow, I can't believe I got to be that far in front of it before I can knock it down. Uh, so there is, there's some advantages to those long barrels. Uh, the problem is that I have with these sporting clay shooters is I'll have someone say, well, I need 32 inch barrels. I say, why do you need 32 inch barrels? And they say, well, because, uh, George Digweed shoots 32 inch barrels. <laughs> and I said, do you shoot the same methodology that George Digweed uses? Because if you don't, then why do you need the same gun? Because it comes down to the methodology to use is what really determines barrel length yeah. in field hunting. We are shooting at something that's unpredictable, and we are making a very efficient reaction to that. That means in field hunting, we got a gun that's going to move much, much more than we do on a clays course. So it's got to be able to react fast and point quick. And that's why we love the shorter 26, 28-inch, 29-inch barrels, and even upwards of 30-inch barrels if you're yeah. uh, in the Dakotas. Um and then uh, if you are shooting a predictable presentation where the movement is so small that, uh, that you'll, you've got to use uh, the longer barrels to give you uh, the realistic lead perception. That's yeah, very interesting. I wonder if, so I'm going to, so I've kind of arrived at this place where, and this is coming off of a season where I shot one of our, our guns from Upland Gun Company. It's a, it's a 20 gauge with 29 inch barrels and I'm primarily a rough grouse and woodcock hunter i mean that's what i do 99 percent of the time it's mm-hmm. a very light gun it's about five and three quarter pounds and it's balanced almost right on the hingeman like a quarter inch ahead of ahead of the hingeman which that was another um kind of i had to get used to that because i most of the other guns that i had shot previously had definitely more of a barrel heavy nature to mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. um and so i felt i had to be more intentional and deliberate with my movements but once i once i figured that out and i I committed to the gun and, and got the confidence level up. I've never shot a gun better than it. And part of that is because of the fit too. But anyways, with the barrel length, I've come to this place and from a whole season of shooting 29 inch barrels, I shot that gun very well. And it seems to me that there's more to gain by making sure you've got some barrel length and, you know, not having that, the fear is people talk about that, that whippy gun that stops too soon. And I know you and I talked about this yesterday, so we'll kind of, we'll get into this a little bit, but the amount of times that I may catch that barrel in the cover on the grouse wood seems so limited. It just doesn't happen as much as you might think, at least in my experience. And so I wonder what there really is to gain by going shorter, but I'm fully assuming here that maybe there's something I'm missing or not thinking about. Now, again, that reminds me of another article I wrote uh, not too long ago about the, the search of the Holy Grail, the perfect woodcock gun, yeah. and where most people put priority on barrel length. Uh, and I tell people, I said, if you are having problems swinging a 30-inch gun in the woodcock woods, you're going to have the same problem swinging a 26-inch barrel in the woodcock woods. It means you're doing something wrong. You're not readdressing the bird before you're mounting the gun. Uh, if you're trying to swing and catch up, you know, in a mounted position, yeah. uh, it doesn't matter what the barrel length is. You're going to, you're going to hit something. Uh, so I always said the barrel length was never the issue for the perfect woodcock and grouse gun. It was weight just because of the amount of time that we are in the woods and the, the fact that you have to a lot of times carry it one handed as you push, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the barberry away or whatever it is that you're trying to get into. Yeah. Uh, um, so we, we want something that doesn't wear us down over time. We want something that points and turns the corner quickly. So, I mean, one of my most favorite and I'm like an idiot, I got rid of it. I had, a, <laughs> I had a, a sub six pound, 16 gauge Webley Scott and early gun, 1920s oh, gun yeah. with 30 inch tubes. And uh, yet it was still less than six pounds. 
And I had the most incredible fun with that gun on woodcock, grouse, and quail. I mean, just, and that was with 30-inch tubes, and there was nothing wrong with it. It worked beautifully. Yeah, so yeah. The, the perfect the perfect woodcock grouse gun is not necessarily a, a barrel length is subjective. Go with what works best for you. But I do believe in weight reduction when it comes to that. As far as balance point on the gun, that, again, has to do with, um, uh, it's subjective to where you like to put your hands and how far your hands are sure. spaced apart. Uh, side by side, you should really have an extended forehand. It, in fact, the English would tell you that that splinter forehand was never for your hand. It was yes. for a polite way to contain the, the recocking levers and the, and the uh, ejector hammers. Uh, it should, the point of that splinter should be in the palm of your hand and the barrels uh, should be resting in around your, and your fingers should be resting around the barrel uh, to give that gun better pointability. In which case, that means that the center point of the gun would be the, the hinge pin between the two hands and that's where the, the, the weight should be or slightly forward. What determines that hand position is not necessarily length of pull or stock, but it has to do with width of shoulders. So I can give you the proper length of pull, uh, but you have narrow shoulders. And where this is going is with women. This is one of the biggest things that is not taught out there when we fit guns for women. Even though I get their length of pull correct, they have usually sloping, narrow shoulders. So their hand is always going to be on the back side of that uh, forehand. And that means, the hand, and that's why you'll see them arc their back because they got weight over that left hand mm. instead of in between the two hands. So a woman's gun for the, for the average sloping shoulder, narrow shoulder, you know, five foot five, five foot uh, four, whatever, yeah. uh, needs to be behind the hinge pin by a good inch. Interesting. Or so. And uh, that makes that gun feel even lighter. Uh, I can actually add weight to a stock of a gun. Uh, which gives the gun more physical weight, but put it back in the hands of the lady shooter, and she goes, "Oh, that feels lighter," and right. it's because it balances back where it should be. Yeah, that if you that's that is a, a very interesting thing about guns and the balance. I mean, there's so much perceived difference in the weight of a gun based on where it's balanced, or even, even where you grip it. Where I think that's a great point to bring up, and I'm sh- you've seen this tons and tons, I'm sure, but you see somebody pick up a side-by-side for the first time that's and they're very accustomed to shooting over-unders or pumps or semi-autos they what do they do they always grab that forend like it's the grip yeah. right yeah. It, even if it's a splinter forend and they're usually and this is you know you correct me if i'm wrong this is my estimation usually they're grabbing it way too close to the breech or or they the are. barrels you, you should slide your hand out just like you said have that splinter forend in in the palm of your hand and then the beauty of that is it allows you to find what's most comfortable for you and, and where Absolutely. the where the balance is. You're not locked into a certain forehand position and you can just find what works best for you on the on the barrels of that gun. Yeah, and that that's even that's even something you would use to adjust to, to what you're wearing. Um, when yeah. someone comes to me and says, Well I'm gonna I'm gonna wear put on what I usually wear when I'm when I'm hunting and I said, Well, you hunt from October to December, don't you? And they say yes and I said, I guarantee you <laughs> you're wearing something different the entire season but you're using the same gun so that's not what we're going to do we're going to fit you in your thin clothes with the ability to put that forehand as far forward as is comfortable uh knowing that as you add layers you can always inch that hand back slightly to accommodate the the added padding the added clothes the added insulation um and you'll you'll feel the gun feel longer as you put the hand out you feel the gun feel shorter as you bring the hand in yes yeah yeah Yep, indeed. Uh, I like the conversation on barrel length kind of basically it's it's a real logical scapegoat, right? You you might logically think, well, a longer barrel, I'm going to get that hung up in the brush, but that's that's not necessarily the case no. and it should be more about 
it's a it's a collective of things all in the gun and weight and balance and everything. How light is too light? Because that's the other thing. You know, people will say, you know, too light gun. It's going to stop too soon. It doesn't have inertia. How do you how do you think about that? Uh, again, the the what swings the gun is the core of the body, mm. not not the arms, not the weight of the gun. So, someone is doing something wrong if they can't get a flat swing out of their gun. Out of a lightweight gun, you got to learn how to dance with a bird. You got to learn how to release the heel like a golf swing. Uh, that's what forces that gun to keep moving, not the weight of the gun. It's you know, people find it probably a little bit easier when they are shooting clays where they want that heavy gun because they are putting themselves if they're doing it right, they're positioning themselves at break point, not at focal point, and so they're unwinding on a bird instead of winding on a bird like we are when in the field. Um, in which case they like the heavier gun that makes that unwind continue because they're not using their feet as much. Uh, but we as bird hunters have got to learn how to, uh, this is Churchill. This is what made Churchill footwork so, so successful in what we do, uh, here in the States, our, our walk up hunting. I don't think it's the greatest methodology for, uh, high driven, but it's yeah. definitely the best methodology for, uh, walk up hunting. And that whole concept of that Churchill footwork is to be able to continue uh, a lightweight gun swing. And um, the other thing that makes a gun feel whippy, and I, this is something we did cover, I think, a little bit yesterday, yeah. is that if uh, if you do go, I think I told you yesterday, I can take a 12-gauge gun that's very, very light, that's six pounds or less, and a 28-gauge gun that weighs exactly the same, and put that 28-gauge gun in a big man hands, and he'll say, I can't shoot this gun, it's too whippy. And then you put the 12-gauge gun that weighs exactly the same, and all of a sudden a swing flattens out. And that has to do with, again, how it fills the hand. If we have a narrow barrel, we have a tendency to want to wrap our fingers more around it, which creates tension all the way up through your arm and into your back and into your shoulder. Tension is what makes a gun feel whippy. If you have a gun that fits your hand, uh, and this is this is side-by-sides. You never hear any of these type of problems with over-and-unders, really. And um, then, then all of a sudden, your, your hand is more relaxed, which means all your muscles up into your arm, shoulder, and back are relaxed, and the gun suddenly levels out and continues to swing. It's almost easier for me to understand the idea that tension would be, because I could feel that sort of stopping my swing and making sure. it herky-jerky, as opposed to being loose and free and, and letting the gun swing through. That, that tension is, is the key point there. Absolutely. Let's let's talk about. We're going to kind of keep going into the features and stuff on certain guns, but let's talk about shooting side by sides because you kind of we made that that differentiation earlier that you sort of specialize in that, and we're talking a lot about it. But say somebody out there shoots an over under pump side by an over under a pump or a you know a single single barrel gun, and they're thinking about moving to a side by side, as many people are. What does that conversation? look like and what considerations do people need to have when making that transition well first of all it's most important to make sure they understand that it can be done and they can learn how to shoot yeah, it side yeah, by side and, and shoot it well <laughs> that's number one because a lot of people just I, I have so many clients now that shoot nothing but side by sides but when they first came to me said i've tried it i just can't do mm-hmm. it yep so what what's the narrow sighting plane of single barrel or stacked barrels uh, allows the subconscious, you may not even know you do it, but when you mount the gun, it allows the subconscious to make a slight little correction if necessary uh, to make sure the pupil is in its proper position over that rib. Uh, the side-by-side is a lot more confusing than the subconscious. So really, number one priority, actually number one is technique, but after technique is learned, 
the biggest priority is fit when side by sides. Uh, cause we don't want to have you making that little self fitting adjustment where you're fitting yourself to the gun. I mean, it, it, it could be very slight movements. I've, I've watched hot shot shooters, uh, who've shot all their lives shoot a gun that obviously doesn't fit. And I watch their head and it might be just a little sudden move of the nose towards the stock instantly before they squeeze the trigger. And they don't even know they're doing it. Uh, it's just that they, they're, they're subconscious learned how to shoot a, a nail fitting gun. So, a proper gun fit is huge with a side-by-side. And what's amazing, because of that, I, I, I uh, coined a phrase years and years ago, uh, subconscious reaction to barrel mass distraction when it comes to gun fitting. And uh, when we have that larger mass come up in front of your eye, it can really change things. Uh, slightly with some people, huge amounts in other people. If I were to fit 10 people with both my over-and-under tri-gun and my side-by-side tri-gun, I can guarantee you that seven out of those ten will fit differently, and four out of those seven will fit dramatically uh, different from one configuration to the other. Interesting. Is there any consistent? Like, I, I think the answer is no. But is there is there consistency in that variation? In that you could say, okay, if you shoot an over under that is like this, then you need a side by side that is like this, or is it is it? Too variable. For the, the the one the one thing that I can always say is that the length of pole will usually be longer, and in some on cases a side by be, side on a side by side, and it, in some cases it can be as little as an eighth or a quarter of an inch. In some cases it can be a half inch to five eighths of an inch, depending on the individual. Okay, yeah, very interesting. And then cast comes into play, but that's subjective, so I can't say there's there's anything common there. It just has to do again with how those eyes. It, it, I, I've seen so many uh, right eye. You got to remember with eye dominance is that. It isn't as simple as there's a right eye or a left eye dominant, okay? There's many variations in between. Uh, in fact, if you are, let's say you're right-handed, if you're locked onto that right eye, that's what we call right eye one. If you are putting the muscle between the right eye and the bridge of your nose, that's right eye two, and then the bridge of the nose would be right eye three, and then otherwise it would be left eye dominance. When the reason is, is you're dealing with where the two visions converge, Okay, mm. so if the two visions happen to converge when both eyes are open closer to the bridge of the nose, that's where the muzzle is going to go. And this is this is really, really, really common when going to side-by-sides. I can see a guy shooting over and under and actually stay pretty much in front of that right eye. But many times do I see a uh, uh, the muscles of a side-by-side go closer to the bridge of the nose with that same individual. So that individual needs more cast. That's that's a little that 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 eye dominance issue right there can be corrected with cast, and I've done it many 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 times. Would you say that it's is it harder for people to shoot a side by side, or is it really just being aware of of those things and then practicing training with it? Well, you know, so the, the priority is technique. So yes, the the, the side by side is much more sensitive to ill technique. Maybe, yeah, less forgiving. Exactly. Okay. So we we need to really understand our technique and. As an old mentor of mine many, many years ago would say, if you don't learn technique but you have a fitted gun, you're going to be a lousy shot with a well-fitted gun. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So technique is always priority one, but it is very, very important with shooting a side-by-side. And, and the most the most important technique is one that minimizes the amount of time the gun is in front of your eye. That's the, the very critical. People who mount and chase do not shoot side-by-sides well. People who mount at the end are the ones that shoot side-by-sides well. And I, think, I think that's a... That's a pretty easy one to feel. I feel like it, you know, if you if you were pre-mounted or you're in the gun too long, I I think it's 
it's easy to perceive some of those things that you just you just know it's a bad shot whereas right. when you like you're saying if you're tracking the bird and the gun is coming up and uh, essentially as the gun is hitting your cheek you're making that shot so you're in the gun for a very short those are the best feeling shots and what is surprised they usually result in the most success well again it goes back to that self-taught shooter who uh i'll tell them that i can slow them down and make them hit the bird sooner by slowing them down mm-hmm. because they're not separating movements with my methodology whereas they used to they used to mount and then start pivoting which means they have to catch up so everything is done at the exact same speed regardless of the speed of the bird it's a fast movement regardless of the speed of the bird but when i slow them down and they start moving in harmony with the bird and mounting at the very end all of a sudden, it's not an aggressive move. It's not a slam into the cheek. And so now you got to reteach them how to mount the gun, even though they had a rock-solid gun mount, but only at one speed, uh, faster than lightning. So now you have to learn how to make a, uh, a disciplined, completed gun mount in slow speed. So it's very important that when you practice your gun mount at home, whether it be in front of the mirror or whether you're following the lines between the ceiling and the wall or those other indoor practices yep. with an empty gun, you have to you practice those gun mounts slow because you can always make a, a fast gun mount, but if you only practice a fast gun mount, that's the only gun mount you have. If yep. you practice a slow, disciplined, completed gun mount, you'll have a gun mount for every speed. That's so funny. I, I now do many more practice mounts at home than I ever did, and I still have a hard time slowing myself down. I just want to <laughs> snap that gun up. It's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. But that, that pretty much describes me to a T in when I first was getting my side by side. I was very, um, you know, snapping the gun up. And I remember the gun that I had, I sold it like an idiot. And if I still had it today, I know I would shoot that gun extremely well based on Mm. sort of this like full circle journey I've been on. But I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I felt like I couldn't hit anything with it. And it was all in my technique and it was all, you know, snapping the gun up and, and probably trying to be in the gun for way too long. And I've since learned shooting with some instructors and talking to folks like you and doing a lot of practice. I've, I've improved a lot. And when I am doing the things that you're describing, that makes you know, an ideal side-by-side shooter or an ideal game shot, that's when I have the most success. And don't get me wrong, I still got a lot of a lot of room to improve, but <laughs> I'm, I'm much better, and that's it's a lot more fun. Yeah, I, I don't understand why people don't practice more at home. They For some reason, they think they can't practice what the, the, the mechanics of shotgunning unless they're at the range with a shell on the gun. Yeah. You know, I, I, I say, you know, go home and practice your gun mount and stuff uh, in front of a mirror or in the living room with the lines, and then on, so that when you come back out here, you're not worried about your gun mount. You're worried about what color eyes that bird has. Yeah. That's all you should be worried about. Yeah. So when it comes to at-home exercises, slow, smooth gun mounts, do you have any other sort of like exercises or exact ways to do things? Yeah. I mean, the, the mirror is the greatest thing. I mean, how many times have you worked with an instructor and he's you know making sure the gun is empty and it gets in front of the muzzle to see the pupil position over yep. the rib? Okay. The mirror will give you that exact same information instantaneously. Uh, so if a, as a right-handed shooter, you get in front of the mirror and you will mount the gun on the reflection of your pupil in the mirror, your right eye pupil, uh, you will immediately see the position of the pupil over the rib. And what you want it to be, obviously, is center. And you want it to be uh, literally laying on top of that rib, almost being the bottom third of your pupil, almost being dissected by the rib. That way, you know your line of sight and the line of bore are absolutely on the same plane, so you'll shoot where you look. So if you make that gun mount and you notice that your eye is high over the rib by a half inch or so, you make the what adjustments do you have to make? 
And there'll be, a, and again, you got to think of it from the feet up. It's not just the fact that uh, the eye is high over the rib because you didn't extend your head forward, but you may still be back on your heels. So feel the weight rock forward on your toes. Feel the head uh, extend towards the target. Everything goes towards the target or the bird. You don't go looking for the gun with your head. The gun, the left hand, and the head, all and the body, all goes towards the target, and then it all comes together at the end of that that uh, movement. Yeah. And uh, so you'll see that, or whether your eyes off to the left or right, and you have to make that little movement. If it's a properly fit gun, you don't have to worry about you know that being the issue. Uh, you make the small little adjustments, and then teach them uh, how to make you know make that movement now that that change and incorporate it into your gun mount so it's not a separate stage. We don't want to we don't want to make a gun mount in stages. It's all all these many many movements we make are actually one. Mm, yeah. They're all melded together as one. And one of the things you have to be sort of careful with that. I know I had a tendency to do this when you're mounting at home. You know, you're not looking at a clay that's going to break. So the, what's the first thing you do? You look at the bead, and you're always checking things, and you're kind of you're looking at the barrel a lot. But I had to sort of remind myself, like pick a target on the wall and make sure I'm, exactly. I'm looking at the target and not looking at the bead of the gun or anything. You're absolutely right. If you want to check yourself, do it afterwards. Yeah. Don't don't be don't be looking for the bead as you mount the gun because yes, your eye will be high, and the and the the muzzle will be pointing higher than when you're looking because you're trying to find the bead. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, you you find the knot or the picture or you know put a picture of a grouse on the yeah, wall. I got one of those. <laughs> there you go, and then mount on that, and then then check and make your corrections. Yeah, but the other thing too that a lot of people don't realize it isn't just pupil position that you see what's happening in the mirror. We go back to that dominant right hand situation for the right-handed shooter, and you see that dip of the muzzle as a gun comes up. Remember I said that you are finding the line, angle, speed, and distance while you're mounting the gun because of that tremendous connection that the left hand has on the bird itself. If all of a sudden the right hand beats that left hand, again, I'm talking right-handed shooter here, if all of a sudden that stock starts beating the muzzle because the right hand starts overpowering, then you've lost that phone connection, that connection to the bird, and all that information that was sent to your brain just went away. Yeah. Um, so, you know, learning to to be able to move the gun with two hands working it in perfect unison. What I try to tell people is visually, to me, it should look like two hands working absolutely in perfect unison subconsciously to the shooter. It should feel like the left hand, the forehand, is the one that moved first and the right hand just followed the lead. Yeah, that's that is one I notice that a lot at home. Again, it's like you know, it's so deeply programmed or what. But my you know right hand takes over, and the gun comes up back into the gun comes up too fast. You see the muzzle dipping, and right. you'll see that a lot. In people doing gun fittings and stuff. They're just that unnecessary. That's inefficient movement. movement. Yeah, that's yep. inefficient movement. And the whole idea is to learn efficiency of movement. That's what we're trying to learn with these methodologies. Yeah, I did. I recently read uh, Chris Batha's book, The Instinctive Shot. I, I intend to get him on this podcast in the near future. But there was a little tip in there that I figured I'd mention to you and and see if you could add to it a little bit. But he he talked about when you're mounting the gun to just apply just a slight tension, like you're almost pulling the gun apart. And what that does is it kind of connects the two hands as you're describing, and it makes it feel like they're moving more as one. And I tried it, and it, it seems to work. I don't know if you've done anything like that. Absolutely, absolutely. And it also the other thing it's doing too is it's helping you create that feeling of extension. I tell people yeah. that a gun mount is never made straight up into your cheek. Mm. It, it, it's got a forward movement as it's coming hinging up to the cheek. There's a, a bayonet on the end of the muzzles, and it's most important that you take that left hand and stick that bird while the right hand is actually pulling towards 
a cheek. So yeah, it's it is the proper. He is absolutely right. Of course, Chris is Chris has been around even longer than me yeah. in this game, and I've been around for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's very cool. I I could absolutely attest to that little trick. At least makes I haven't been out shooting in a while, not since hunting season was over. But uh, it definitely makes the practice mounts feel like they're absolutely. like they're working. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. All right. Let's talk about. I want to keep going into these features a little bit. One of the fun things that I get to do at Upland Gun Company is talk customers through building these guns, and we're going back and forth. And it's it's the it's the fun part about it, but it's also the agonizing part about it. <laughs> we're trying to decide on all these options, yes. the uh, yeah. the paradox of choice. But um, one of the things that you and I chatted about yesterday was this idea of rib, flat rib versus a concave rib. And this is, of course, side-by-sides because we're talking an over-under or something. We've got a flat raised rib, essentially. But the difference between a concave rib and a flat rib and why somebody might choose one over the other. If you are shooting truly instinctive, if we are shooting uh, birds in the field for the most part, uh, close-range birds to mid-range birds, the, the amount of time that the rib is in front of the eye is is minimal. Um, yep. focus, you know, we're, we are literally throwing our two hands into our line of sight. And as I told you before, the priority of any good game gun actually is the weight reduction. And so going to the English concave rib is a great way to reduce a ridiculous amount of weight that really helps the gun feel lively in the hands. It, it also can help with certain point of impact changes when necessary. Driven bird shooters uh, of, of grouse in Scotland have a tendency to have ribs that swamp even more than most and more than average but i think for the most part the english concave rib was a way to uh, reduce weight the flat rib uh, if you are shooting a methodology that has you in the gun a little bit longer than it should or uh, needs to be a microsecond longer uh, is again helping to separate all the sighting planes on the side by side if if someone is very barrel oriented when they shoot Mm. Uh, then they want an obvious sighting plane as opposed to just something out there. Pigeon shooters who shot side by live bird shooters who shot side by side, uh, trap shooters who shot side by side, uh, now these sporting clays side by side guns uh, all have uh, elevated. That more raised rib. Yeah. Much more raised rib, and that's just to give the, the subconscious a very obvious sighting plane uh, where the subconscious can get very confused. Uh, with that uh, concave swamped rib if if you stay in the gun too long trying to associate gun and bird at the same time. Um, so the better game gun is always going to have the uh, uh, concave or swamped rib and uh, the better pigeon gun or, or uh, sporting clays gun is always going to have the flat file or even, even ele- uh, ventilated and elevated. Interesting. And I... I hadn't even hadn't even really thought of the weight reduction aspect of the you know a lot of times you hear it you'll hear concave game rib swamped rib those terms are kind of used interchangeably and they they have you can see differences on different guns I have some guns that are as you're sort of alluding to some of them are really really swamped and others are less so or more gradually swamped but mm-hmm. it's it's a rib that is not raised above the barrels of the gun through the full length of the barrels. That's that's what we're getting at here. If you if you look at old old orders uh, from Purdy or Hong Hong or any of the, the London best makers of the twenties, which of course was a golden era of gun making, yeah. you'll see the order will, will distinguish. It'll either say game gun or it'll say wildfowl gun. And I can guarantee you that the difference between the two is the rib 
and the overall weight of the gun. Yeah. That's that's your primary difference between those those two of uh, the guns made in that era. All wildfowl guns will have a flat file rib, slightly elevated. All game guns will have a concave rib, and uh, that's that's how they distinguish it. And because that the the like I said, the live bird shooter uh, is in the gun longer than the uh, uh, the game gun shooter is. All right, let's talk grip briefly because this was an interesting thing that came up in our conversation yesterday and that the idea of grip might not necessarily just be personal or user preference and there there may be some some theory or some function behind various grips no question uh i mean but in with gun configuration it's the same thing a sporting clays gun doesn't work in the field a game gun will work on a sporting clays course but not if you're competing Mm -hmm. so if if you're taking a straight hand stock side by side uh on a sporting clays course and you're shooting a couple hundred rounds uh your wrist and and uh, everything's going to start feeling it because of the angle of the wrist in relationship to the hand uh yet if you go out in the field when we are shooting instinctively and you're seeing the bird and you're throwing your two hands up into your line of sight, then you want that straight hand stock because the gun has much, much better pointability. So what you rather have on a sporting clays course or in any place where we are shooting bigger loads um, and there's recoil in particular behind it and we need more gun control, then we like that full pistol grip because the it straightens the wrist behind the hand. It's an absolute perfect alignment uh, the wrist is in line with the, with the direction the fingers are going and the whole bit. So you absorb the recoil better and you control the gun through recoil uh, better with a pistol grip gun. Everything in between was was more of a way to uh, politely, it, it, you know, the Woodward put on a nice long, long sweeping uh, pistol grip gun back in the day yeah. uh, just so it would be a trademark to them you know so they're in the round knob uh, superposed guns yeah. are very unique and they're long sweeping round knob pistol grips but for the most part um, maybe in the middle that is can be a little more subjective if you have someone that just cannot shoot um, a straight hand stock sure. and then you can sweep it just a little bit then maybe that helps but for the most part the extremes have their 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 reasons the splinter forehand straight hand stock is a very responsive pointable gun the staggering of hands on a full pistol grip gun and the larger forend push the barrel up out of the hands and the hands are now staggered so that they are not in line and that gun does not have pointability but if i'm shooting clays i don't need pointability because i already know what the presentation is sure um so that's that you know it, for in true instinctive shooting the straight hand stock is a much much better configuration yes yeah, so, yes yeah, so in the case of in the case of upland bird shooting the idea that you would have your hands up higher closer to your line of sight pointability that would be seen as an as an advantage for that sort of group, absolutely you know? absolutely and what about on the forehand side of things the beaver tail semi beaver tail because this is an interesting conversation that i get into a lot and you know we talked about how the idea behind the splinter forehand really had a lot of thought behind it it wasn't just a you know chosen for its aesthetics it's so that your hand could sort of you could find the best place to grab that gun whereas a uh, sometimes a beaver tail is sort of sort of locking you into that if you're wanting to grab that how do you think about that yeah one thing the beaver tail does it doesn't allow you to make adjustments when necessary uh whether it's due to weather or whether it's due to angle or high driven or something like that when you want to bring the hand back or bring it forward on a flat aggressive target the, the splinter forehand allows the barrels to rest much closer to your hand and like i said you're basically throwing that again talking right-handed you're throwing that left hand at the bird that's what you're doing 
So you you want you're putting the you're putting that that hand in perfect alignment of your eye and the bird. So the barrels it's going to shoot better of where you're looking if it's nestled right into that hand. Whereas a heavy heavy four stock pushes the barrels out of the hand, and we don't have that uh, uh, natural pointability of the barrels. The beaver tail forehand really is. I mean, it it was a, a com, uh, for competition stuff, skeet things like that. It, again, because it helped uh, people have control over the gun, and second, it obviously kept their hands away from hot metal. Correct. When we shoot, when we shoot a lot. Yeah. But the beaver tail forehand also came into play when everyone suddenly decided they wanted to shoot twenty eight gauge guns because they were so nice and light and delightful. Yeah. And and but they couldn't get their they couldn't uh, they would obstruct their line of sight because they gripped the barrels too much and their fingers would come up over the rib. So they give them the beaver tail forehand now adds weight now all of a sudden you've lost the uh, <laughs> the mystique and the <laughs> of the twenty eight gauge guns sure. to begin with. Yeah. Which is, you know, one of the reasons, again, uh, I said uh, about, oh, you know, back in the 20s and 30s when in the UK they were doing everything they can to make a 12-gauge gun as light as a 28-gauge as a gun or as light as possible so that you had a gun that fit your hand and you wouldn't wrap all the way around but still had that incredible responsiveness and lightness. Never mind the fact that a 28-gauge load in a 12-gauge hull it performs a lot better than it does in its own hull. Yes. So. Yeah, yes. I love that conversation. Um, yeah, <laughs> I want to jump into that just a little bit there because I, I definitely wanted to talk about that. And let's sort of use this contrasting discussion on the joys and the, and the beauty of the 28-gauge versus a light 12-gauge that, in theory, does everything that 28-gauge can do and more. How do you think about those two and in, in what makes which one of those makes sense for one person where it may not make sense for another person? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I think if if more and more people realized uh, that there were light light twelve gauge guns out there, and that there were twelve gauge shells loaded in a twenty eight gauge uh, pattern, that you would see less and less of the desire of the twenty eight. But the twenty the twenty eight has that little. Uh, feel and, and it's dainty and it's delicate and it's beautiful and, and uh, it does perform actually quite well but amazingly in its own canister in its 28 gauge hull it actually produces more <laughs> energy it produces more foot pounds of energy uh, than the 12 or the 20 uh, you're looking at if you take a 28 gauge load in its own hull it's pushing minimum of, of eight or nine thousand and upwards of eleven thousand and is if that you take the, PSI that you're talking about? That's right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And if you take that same load and you put it in a two and a half inch or, or even a two and three quarter inch uh, 12 gauge can, first of all, you have much less pressures because you have uh, a larger can for that explosion to happen in. There's not as much pressures built. Mm-hmm. So uh, the same load in a two and a half inch 12 gauge shell will produce four, between four and 5,000 foot pounds. So, or pounds per square inch. So, um, that's much less recoil. And what you get out of it is tremendous ballistics because yep. anytime you take a shot column and shorten it to its width, then you have more shot. You have less stringing and more shot getting there at the same time. Basically, the 16 gauge and 28 gauge fell out of uh, love years and years and years ago when our typical American mentality was if I missed, I need a bigger shell, bigger gun. And they tried to extend the load on 28s and 16s, but they, they they just blew them away. It didn't do anything. The pattern was horrible. So they got rid of them. 
and the 20 gauge shell and the 12 gauge shell for some reason was able and more forgiving to extending that length of shot column uh, adding a little more velocity and we got some pretty decent performance out of it and that's unfortunately really hurt our gun making industry when that happened because you get much better patterns out of slower speeds and shorter shot columns we eliminate the, the, the pellet deformation you eliminate all of that and you, the, the, the little analogy I like to use is if I take a, a, a handful of very small pebbles and try to wing them as hard as I can they'll disperse immediately if I take that same handful of small pebbles and just lob them, all those pebbles stay together right till they hit the ground. Yeah. So that's what you get with a with a eleven hundred foot, uh, eleven hundred feet per second load pushing a three quarter ounce out of a twelve gauge can. You get all that shot with tremendous even density of pattern and all of it getting there at the same time. So some people will say, well, that you're not giving enough energy to kill. Well, you will because where you don't have the velocity, you do have more shot contacting the bird at the same time and two pellets is more energy than one pellet regardless of the speed so it's it's a they're just so much there's so much more fun to shoot and amazing how far they can actually reach yeah that's a the great gauge debate it's a it's an interesting one and again it i think it has evolved a little bit and changed over time with modern ammunition as you're you're alluding to there but this idea that and the 28 gauge is cool and and it, it can be it can be that way just on its own accord, it's a, it's a, it can shoot an effective payload and it can do it well. But to you know, not consider the fact that a, you know, a light handling twelve gauge that fits you well and carries about as well as potentially a twenty eight gauge that that cannot do ev- anything that the twenty eight gauge do and more that would be crazy, right? Absolutely, it's just that the twenty eight gauge is first of all they're fun they're fun to shoot yep. and they're awful sexy. They're very sexy little guns and and. Uh, and yeah, I, I I took a look at at uh, one of the uh, Upland Gun Company. Yeah, guns you've got in the, the it's the Venus, so it's the yeah. that's a dainty little gun. <laughs> oh, what a wonderful <laughs> little frame on that gun! Absolutely wonderful little frame on that gun. I mean, that's 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 uh, thankfully um, with today's uh, metallurgy and, and tooling and stuff like that, that that can be done. Yeah. But that's 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 just a, that is a very sexy little gun. Is the one that you have? Is it? Does that have 28 or 30-inch barrels, do you know? 28. 28. 28. Okay. Yeah. And it actually is 28-inch barrels with screwing chokes, and uh, I put it on the scale, and I was pleasantly surprised to see it come in at 5 pounds. Uh, I think it was 5.1 or 5.2 ounces. Yeah. Which uh, I was surprised because typically when you put in screwing chokes, uh, your barrel walls have to be thicker, and usually the weight comes up because of it. But that, that's a that's a great weight for a modern-day 28-gauge. Yeah, I've, I've actually been very impressed. I've seen a bunch of those. I, I actually have one here, but the weight characteristics and the handling characteristics that you get in that gun. It, again, it's 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 a it's a light gun. Five and a quarter pounds is a light gun on paper, but you pick that up, and it feels very shootable to me. Yes, very much so, very much so. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'm looking forward to this fall. I've, I'm going to be... Doing a little bit of experimentation with the 28 gauge. I haven't shot a lot of 28 gauge, especially not at game. And and then 12 gauge, I'm I'm sort of I will have a light 12 gauge that will fit me well, have the handling balance characteristics, and so I'm really curious at kind of putting those through two through their paces. And I've got a I've got a good baseline in shooting some some 20 gauges that I shoot you know well enough. But mm-hmm. I, I'm really curious about you know, sort of exploring the 28 versus that. And then also this, this idea of the 12 and, and shooting some, you know, maybe lighter payloads and stuff, but coming out of that big bore, what that shooting experience is like, and then sort of the effectiveness and the, the killing pattern of it all. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's going to be fun. No question. Well, uh, I think we're, we're getting pretty close to wrapping up, Lars. I really appreciate it. One thing that we do want to do as Upland Gun Company is we are going to, I don't have all the details worked out quite yet, but the listeners will know this uh, when they listen to the intro of this episode. Uh, we'll figure out how this is going to work, but um, somebody's going to have a chance to come and do a gun fitting with you. So uh, for the potential winner of that, what, what might that gun fitting experience look like? Well, it'll, it'll be a good time and amazing uh, experience, actually. It's not just because you'll see uh, what it does when you when when you see on a pattern board, yeah. uh, they the student actually sees what I see when I'm instructing. They oh my gosh yes I am to the left and I said yeah we'll fix that with a little tweak here and then they see the pattern move on the board and that just that it, it's an amazing thing that that little teeny tweak downrange makes such a big distance. Yeah, and the other thing is too is it's probably one of the best instructional areas as a pattern board because it'll allow you to work if you if we do have a gun mount that's not consistent. We can fix that gum out the same time we're getting your dimensions. Yeah. Um, what I will have is I will have over and under and side by side tri guns because as I, we discussed earlier, there is a difference between the two what dimensions you come up with, yeah. um, and uh, so the the choice is there. If someone comes to me and says I'm, I'm I just want to get into it, I'm not really thinking about a side by side yet or something like that, then we'll fit an over and under. But the side by side is there as well if, if uh, someone wants, and it's a, it's a live round uh, fit uh, so you'd be fitting on a metal pattern board yep. and there's always the possibility of uh, finishing off on moving targets with that tri-gun just to to finalize certain details but uh, uh, there's there's a, a great article that I wrote uh, it's uh, it was in magazines but it's in my uh, my website wildsurroundings.com right now are you fit and if you read that article, it tells you exactly what you'll be going through when you are being fit by me. Perfect. I will make sure to put a link to that in the show notes. I will say for anybody that has never been able to go shoot at a patterning plate with a with an instructor gun fitter, yeah, definitely a worthy experience. It circles back to that conversation we had about the lack of feedback that you often get if you're out shooting right. shooting by yourself exactly. at clays. But to, yeah, to see that pattern move around on the board as a result of gun fit and also your gun mount uh, really can highlight some inconsistencies or some uh, incorrect fittings. Very, very fun experience. Absolutely. Lars, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and the listeners. This is a fascinating conversation. Uh, we could we could do it again another time and talk about all oh, kinds yes. of different stuff. I really, <laughs> really enjoyed it. Uh, you mentioned your website a couple of times. Where's the best place for folks to go to, to maybe read some more of your stuff and perhaps get in touch well, with you? Well, the, the better one is, is why I have two websites. There's LarsJacobWingshooting.com, uh, but the one that uh, I've been putting most of my articles and stuff on and also uh, has the uh, listing of services and, and uh, other things that I do. Uh, is wildsurroundings.com. Excellent. I will link all that stuff up in the show notes. Uh, again, Lars, it was it was my pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for taking the time. And, man, I, I certainly hope I can come shoot with you someday. Uh, it, was, it was my pleasure, and I hope so too, Nick. And definitely it was, it was great chatting with you. All right. You have a good one, Lars. All right. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. That does it for this episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Quick reminder, we are presented by Onyx Hunt, Upland Institute, Yukonuba Sporty Dog, and Upland Gun Company. Rate, review, subscribe, like, and share. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast.
Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.